side. Most of you know me, my name is Martin Saunders. Um, we are in the midst of a sermon series looking at the things that we value as a church. And uh, today, um, sort of almost despite the readings, we are looking at a phrase from the Lord's Prayer known as Your Kingdom Come. And um, this comes after last week where Jean James, who was sat there, disappeared on me. She's in crash, bless her. Um, Jim James last week talked eloquently of the place and purpose and the provision of prayer. Um, and so do listen online uh, to that talk if you missed it or ask someone that was here for their notes. And um, hello to everybody online. Apparently there might be some people out there. Just get rid of that. Um, so today we're looking at that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, which um, is your kingdom come and... Um, It's a phrase that I think is open sometimes to some miscommunication, um, but hopefully today we'll tease out what we mean by that, um, just as uh, in this picture you might think there's been some miscommunication. Um, This is King Arthur and the Round Table. Um, Cool, says one of the knights. Cool Round Table, who built it? Ah, it was Circumference. Sorry for that groan. If you're not sure why that happens there, then you just need to ask your mathematician. Um, so remember the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, let's move on, yes, um, is a prayer that's according to Luke, at least, Jesus taught when his disciples did not know how to pray. So this is Luke chapter 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, Jesus talked quite a lot about the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, and the kingdom coming to earth. So, for example, at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, we have it, um, that this is, this is the, the, the first words of Jesus on, in Mark's Gospel. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. So Jesus makes two statements. He declares that the, the time has come, which I think is something about the, the fulfillment of many prophecies in the Old Testament have come, has come to this point in history when Jesus walks the earth and teaches. And he then declares that the kingdom of God has come near. And the action that he calls his hearers to is to repent and believe the good news. Repent, metanoia there in Greek, um, to my mind, is about opening your eyes to a new reality. So it's, it's not so much sorrow about the past, but more about turning around and facing a bright, new, good news-filled future. Turn and believe the good news. Interestingly, Paul talks lots about salvation, where Jesus talked lots about the kingdom of God. And I think it's possible broadly to equate the two terms and say that salvation comes when we enter God's kingdom. And necessarily, that's whilst we are here on earth. But remember that salvation might be personal, but it's not individual. So what I mean by that is that salvation is communal by design. We are called into God's redemptive community. 
Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one who seeks to gather scattered humanity into his flock. Now, I think for some of us, we can get a little bit hung up about salvation. Am I saved? Do I feel saved? Does it, what, how does this work for me? And I think it probably is helpful to think about citizenship here. Um, in, in secular terms, you're a citizen of whichever country you have a passport for. For most of us, that's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And you're a citizen because the state says you are. Whether or not you feel like a citizen. It's a positional thing and not a feelings thing. So if you can say, along with Paul, who wrote to the Romans like this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And the will be there is is only about the reality that we will go to heaven. Um, And if you will be saved, then you have been saved and you are being saved. Um, But for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple, friends. So, if you can say that, if you can declare that Jesus is Lord, if you can believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you are a citizen of heaven, temporarily resident here on earth. And you can feel as unworthy as you want, but you are still a citizen of heaven resident on earth. Now this concept of belonging to God's people is something that in a sense is at heart between the difference in the New Testament. We often think of the Old Testament as characterised by law and the New Testament as characterised by grace. But just think for a minute about the Old Testament. Think about, for example, the scapegoat. The goat that was sent out into the wilderness as a way of atoning for the sins of all the people. Or, indeed, the whole temple sacrificial system. It's all about something else taking on the consequences of our sins and thus us being restored into right relationship with God. Which, in the end, is a definition of grace. In other words, the Old Testament might be characterised by law, but those laws enabled access to God's mercy and forgiveness. So the Old Testament was about mercy for a particular people group, and the New Testament invites the whole world to become God's forever people. With not just access to the mercy of God, that is the forgiveness of God, but also the empowering presence of God in us through his Holy Spirit. Thought of like that, it's reasonable then to say that there are certain aspects of the law, the Torah, which separated out one people group from the others, and those are the aspects which are now obsolete. So the dietary restrictions, the purity code, the ethnic markers, the circumcision rituals, the holy days, they're obsolete. Instead now, the people of God, people of the kingdom, us to a large extent, are defined essentially by faith, for most people by baptism as a declaration to the world of that faith, and obedience to the Messiah. All our 
are welcome to join this community on account of the work of Jesus on the cross in dying to remove from us the consequences of our rebellion against God. Hallelujah, indeed. So a summary so far. It's not the end, don't worry. We're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, your, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one way of understanding that phrase, your kingdom come, is about the call for us as individuals, yes, to be in right relationship with God, but in doing so to be part of that community of God-botherers here on earth. In the end, that's about doing the things which happen in heaven. On earth. So, uh, hmm, you read Daniel, you read Revelation in the Bible, uh, and they both think of heaven as a community of people worshipping God. So we are called to be community, then, on this earth, and that includes to be people who regularly gather together to worship God. A community of one is hardly a community worshipping God, is it? So we're called to be together to worship God as a foretaste of heaven. And in doing so, we are part of the answer to our own prayers about your kingdom come. Now, another view of what your kingdom come might mean is in terms of how we might need also to recognise that we're filled with the power of God, that is the same power as raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So yes, we need to worship, we need to adore, we need to bring ourselves to the foot of the cross, but we're also called to be people who put ourselves in situations where that power of God in us will be seen in our lives. Let's go back to Jesus a moment. That summary in Mark's Gospel at the start of Jesus' ministry um, ran like that. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. What Jesus then did, um, you see we're not missing out any of the verses of chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, was that he called his first disciples, so he created a community around him. He then dries out an impure spirit, he heals many people, he prays in a solitary place, he heals a man with leprosy, he forgives and heals a paralysed man. So Jesus did not just live on earth in the same way as residents of heaven live, but he acted to bring the characteristics, the values of the kingdom of heaven to earth as well. Hence, he said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. He didn't just say it, he did it. He showed what it's going to be like in heaven. That there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. That we will have resurrection bodies that will last forever. And therefore will need to be perfect. And he showed samples of what it's like in heaven on earth. He brought heaven near to earth. Again, in Matthew's Gospel, um, Matthew's Gospel starts with some of the um, birth narrative, and then we get uh, Matthew's uh, chapters 5 to 7 is all the um, Sermon on the Mount, and then chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Matthew's Gospel, you have um, basically incidents of Jesus doing miracles. Giving sight to the blind, letting the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then, start of Matthew 11, John's, gospel, John's disciples get sent to ask this 
slightly crazy question, but John was in prison, and you can imagine he might have a little bit of sort of crisis of, uh, of whether this is whether he's done right or not. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect something, someone else? And Jesus replied to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you see and hear. That is, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, and, oh yes, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So I think Matthew very clearly lays out his gospel so that what Jesus summarises here at the start of Matthew 11, we see in the previous three chapters. In order to know again that the kingdom of God has come near. These are the kind of things that happen when the kingdom of God comes near. Now, as I said earlier, we're taught that the same power as raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. That passage comes from Ephesians 1, uh, and it runs like this. I keep asking, says Paul um, in his prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. We all who are able, with that Romans verse to say Jesus is Lord, who have a belief that Jesus was raised from the dead, have the same power in us as raised Christ from the dead. And remember, Jesus said, those who come after even greater things than these. And he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, on earth as in heaven. Come back to that one. That means we're to, do, to, to look for healing of the sick. We're to pray for God to intervene in situations. And we do all that we can to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God evident on this earth. We're called to seek God, to petition him, to give him permission to work through us. Yes, we recognize that the fullness of the kingdom will not be seen until the prophecy of Revelation is fulfilled. We are called in the meantime to pray. The posh word for um, that's that understanding that we live in a now and a not yet situation is inaugurated eschatology. In other words, the eschaton, the end times, have been inaugurated, have started already. But the fullness of it we will not see until the end is fully come. Remember... When Jesus turned up and started preaching, there was a demon who shouted out, and I've forgotten what he shouted out now, but something like, have you come to destroy us before our time? The time has come, said Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. We begin to see the fullness of the kingdom, but we won't see the full fullness of the kingdom until we get to heaven, or until this earth ends. And that's why there can still be times when life is frankly rubbish, even for the best of Christians. Because we don't see it all now. 
but he doesn't stop us praying and seeking and wanting and working for those days when God's kingdom does break into this earth. So I don't mind whether you base the growth of the kingdom on the phrase in the Lord's Prayer or the command of Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel to go, making disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught us. It's still something we are called to do. So today, how are you doing at your kingdom come in your own life? Are you actually fully part of God's community on earth? Are you doing all that you can to see God's kingdom extend? Or are you doing it, and are you doing it, with godly attitude? That is with values of love, of hospitality, of acceptance of all, with a God-honouring lifestyle. Or, frankly, is this more like you? I have a feeling my guardian angel looks like this quite often. And you can't quite see it, but there's a guardian angel with his head over his eyes going, No! Not again! Can't believe he's done that! Is it time we changed? In other words, we are called to seek to see God's rule and reign evident in all our relationships and all the settings that we are in. Now, you've had a passage from Romans, and and it seems to me that actually it's all too easy to get into debate and activity. That distracts us from our calling. Again, you probably can't quite see this, but the word at the bottom is underachievement. And the the subtitle is, because soaring with the angels requires, uh, with the eagles, requires so much more effort. And we have penguins sliding along the ice. So you settle for second best sometimes. But sometimes we get into debate which distracts us from our calling. The reading from Romans is essentially a call not to stress about the differences of how we live out our faith. In the terms of Romans, whether we eat meat or we don't eat meat, Paul doesn't mind. We don't mind. God doesn't mind. God calls us, God's call, Paul's call, is that whatever decision we as individuals make, we don't look down on people who come to the opposite decision. Instead, as with that final verse that we had read, Paul's prayer, our prayer, your prayer, I ask, is that you would be so full of hope that you overflow into the situations around you. Let's talk about diets, friends. If you're trying to lose weight, there's certain fad diets out there, out there, aren't there? There's a 5-2, or the 16-8. The 5-2, you eat normally for five days and you fast for two. The 16-8, you fast for 16 hours and then you eat whatever you want within the eight hours. But it's about losing weight. If we're going to maintain weight, then think of it spiritually, you need a balanced diet. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need to learn to feed yourself daily. This can feel like the spiritual equivalent of coming to a restaurant. It's all laid on, all you have to choose is to engage. The rest of the week, generally we need to learn to do self-catering. And when you do self-catering, you need to have a good balance in your food, don't you? You have some fibre, you have some carbohydrates, you have some proteins, whatever else you need. And spiritually, here's a suggestion. Think 
think about including up, in and out every day? What, you say? Up, in and out. Here we go. Up, talk to God. Read his words to you every day. In, interact with other Christians. Whether that's people in your home group, whether that's people that you meet um, at work, whether that's actually, frankly, buying into a daily Bible reading system where you get somebody that gives you a comment, or whether you go and access a website, but do something that is encouraging to your faith, that is about listening to how other people see God as well. So that's the in bit. And then the out bit is saying, actually, let's seek God and God-given opportunities for your faith to be seen in words and actions amongst those who don't yet know Jesus. Up, in, out. And then God's kingdom will come in our lives, in the lives of those around you, in the lives of those who live in our communities. And perhaps we'll escape from the present statistics which suggest, I'm shocked by this, that 2% of adults in Anglican churches today did not grow up in a church setting. Only 2%. Let's test that out, if you're willing to. Who did not get involved in church as a kid? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There you go. So we buck the trick. Great. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but across the nation, apparently, 2% of adults in Anglican churches did not grow up in a church setting. And clearly, nationally, and nationally starts with local, it's time to change. We do have a mission. We do have a calling to go and make disciples. And so let's be clearly missional in all that we do and say and think and are. But equally, let's grow that relationship with God and with each other. Let's go back to that prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And hope, friends, is something we have that most of the world does not. So flow this week and in these days and weeks and months and years to come as you trust in God, as you grow in your relationship with him, may God fill you with such joy and peace. Amen.